The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Up next, we're talking about Robin Hood's lowly valuation and Russian oil caps. Welcome back to The Views Room, the podcast from Reuters Breaking Views, where columnists from around the world talk about the big stories of the week. I'm your host, Amy Donlan, coming to you from Canary Wharf in London. Robin Hood is in a slump. The digital brokerage that went public with a sky-high valuation of $32 billion is now only worth $7 billion. Its poor fortunes are directly linked to that of its customers, which haven't been trading as frequently and have been hit hard by the 2022 market sell-off. But there is a case to be made that Robinhood is being too harshly punished by the market. Also, Western leaders are running the rule over a plan to apply a price cap to Russian oil. It's a nice idea. After all, limiting the revenue Vladimir Putin can pocket from Europe will make it harder for him to fund the war in Ukraine. But there's a high probability of Moscow finding a workaround. If that were to happen, it could actually lead to higher oil prices. Politicians may be better off leaving well enough alone. First, John Foley dials in from Washington to chat about Robin Hood's fortunes and the options for the digital brokerage. Next, Pierre Briançon in London discusses the unintended consequences of a Russian oil cap. Robin Hood is in a dramatic slump. Here to talk to you about it is John Foley. And according to John's piece, it may not be all bad. Hi, John. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. Great to talk to you. You're, you're beaming in from Washington, D.C., is that right? That is right. Great. It's hot and swampy. <laughs> Delightful. <laughs> and plenty of action happening there. But yes, John, I'm really curious about this because Robin Hood, even in my neck of the woods in London, this was a huge story. Um, obviously, they listed in July, a uh, huge, big valuation, a lot of kind of fanfare around it because obviously people were, you know, the ordinary people could use it. So tell me what has sort of happened since that, since that IPO, because the stock market obviously has sort of cratered in parts. Where does Robin Hood fall in all of that? So Robin Hood launched its life as a public company to great fanfare you might remember last year it was Robinhood is a, is a digital share and option and cryptocurrency trading product it's like an app it's, and it's it's quite well designed it's very like zillennial friendly you know compared with some of the kind of clunky brokerages that were out there Robinhood was very fresh and it made it very easy to trade in for example options and so it got tied up with the whole meme stock boom um, and of course, got tied up, unfortunately, with the slump in some of those meme stocks like GameStop and AMC, the cinema chain. So, but Robinhood, it talked a lot of democratizing stock trading, and that was a really, um, just a really hot topic for a while. Since then, though, what's happened is that the markets have started to correct. The S&P is down about 10% uh, since Robinhood's share price hit its peak in August last year. Uh, Bitcoin has halved, and crypto is a big part of what Robinhood does. So, the, so Robinhood's share price has gone from you know, it, it issued its stock at about $38 a share, and it's now trading, you know, below $9 a share, um, and it's down about 90% from its peak. So in short, Robin Hood went up like an arrow and came down like a stick. <laughs> I like the analogy. So yeah, John, is this kind of what we saw in the pandemic and during lockdowns where people, a lot of certainly kind of young professionals were indoors, couldn't spend money and saved a lot? 
and then probably had a huge amount to, to trade and to buy cryptocurrencies. But that is a very different situation that we find ourselves today, which is obviously the stock market has been hit and inflation is soaring and gas prices are soaring. And maybe people need that money that they would have been using trading to actually just pay for essentials. I think that's exactly right, Amy. Like one of the features of, of the pandemic was that households in the US in particular ended up t with what some people have called an excess of savings. I mean, you never feel like you have an excess of savings, of course, but there were roughly $2 trillion swilling around in bank accounts that wasn't there before. And that's from, you know, government stimulus is a, is a major driver of that. And a lot of that ended up being plowed into the stock market. And Robinhood's younger skewing customers were, were taking punts on things, asset prices and asset prices were going up, things like crypto, uh, things like stocks. And now times are tighter, inflation is closing in on double digits. A lot of them are just going to find that that money is needed elsewhere. And as those savings are eventually eroded through those higher prices, people will just have less money to take a punt on, you know, AMC options um, or on Bitcoin or Dogecoin or whatever it may be. Uh, and that has re that's been reflected fairly predictably in falling revenue for Robinhood, falling revenue per user from Robinhood users, which is now almost a third of what it was a year ago. And the share price has fallen as a result. And John, this customer base, though, is actually quite valuable, though, isn't it, in terms of the, the customers, you know, may not be spending as much, but that is something that could give it a value if you were if you were thinking about it as a target. Absolutely. And this has been my theory about Robinhood since since we first started writing about it. I mean, there are, there are lots of reasons to be skeptical about Robinhood's model. It's very new. It's grown very fast. It, it's been accused of making trading like a game, which can have potentially harmful effects for consumers. What it does do, though, is host about 22.8 million accounts, recently transacted accounts, which represents, you know, tens of millions of customers who think Robinhood is good enough to at least keep their accounts open. And I think there are a lot of other financial services companies out there that would really like to have 22.8 million new customer accounts and try and sell to them other products, be it credit cards, savings accounts, checking accounts, crypto wallets. Robinhood is already starting to do some of that itself. It's offering, for example, like a prepaid debit card um, and, a, and something that's a bit like a, a bank account. So there's this idea that if you own the customer, you can then sell other things to them. And because these customers are younger, there's more scope to do that. So I think that's where Robinhood's value lies. Even if its revenue per user continues to fall, even if the markets don't pick up again and people don't regain their appetite for risk, that user base is potentially a very attractive asset. And that's why at some point, Robinhood might start to look cheap yes, absolutely. to an acquirer. And, and John, so how should we think about what would be a relevant benchmark for valuing this company? So we can kind of get to who might buy it in a bit, but how would you value this company? So there are, there are a couple of ways of thinking about it. One way that we uh, did in the uh, column that we wrote recently, and it's actually similar to what we did back when Robinhood first came to market, last year is to just kind of work out what revenue could be in a given year and then put that on a multiple to derive the value of the company. We have some benchmarks here. E-Trade, which is a rival to Robinhood, admittedly a kind of long, an, an older and a more established one, sold itself to Morgan Stanley in 2020 for five times its forecast sales. E-Trade is not a bad comparison, actually, because one of the reasons Morgan Stanley bought E-Trade was so that it could cross-sell some of its wealth products to E-Trade customers, and that's worked out quite nicely. So if you say that Robinhood can sell for five times its sales, for example, and let's say its sales basically st have stabilized around where they are now, then you're looking at a valuation which is pretty close to where the company's valuation is now. So 
in short, what that means is that Robinhood is now trading at a level where uh, it looks pretty fairly priced. And on top of the value of the company, you also get a giant pile of cash because Robinhood has at the moment seven billion dollars. Uh, actually less six six and a bit billion dollars of cash on its balance sheet so if a buyer buys robin hood they get that cash and that cash provides a very helpful cushion to invest in the business to pay any fines and settlements that may come up later so it gives you a kind of contingency if you're a buyer who wants those users but you're a bit worried about some of the nasties that might lurk in the cupboard yes and john who could buy this what what are the obvious you know companies banks that might look to robin hood and, and make good use of it well, there was one story earlier, uh, a few days ago, about FTX, which is a crypto exchange founded by a guy called Sam Bankman-Fried, seeking a path, in quotes, to buy Robinhood. That was a story broken by Bloomberg. Like FTX now says that it's not actually actively in talks to buy Robinhood, but Sam Bankman-Fried does own a stake in Robinhood, so they are one potential suitor. Also, any really any big financial services company that wants to sell a bunch more stuff to a young and upwardly mobile group of customers should be interested. That could include companies like Goldman Sachs, which is branching out into consumer finance and credit cards and buy now, pay later. It could include JP Morgan, which obviously has a vast array of consumer banking products. And it also has its own stock trading service, which has not made as much of a a splash as Robinhood. Goldman and JP Morgan were both actually underwriters for Robinhood's IPO, so they know the company well. But the universe could expand to anyone who just wants to latch onto those 22.8 million user accounts. Well, I mean, with very volatile stock market, I think your prediction may be right. So we will we will obviously have to chat to you again. Thank you very much, John. Western leaders are examining a plan that would put a cap on Russian oil exports. But this may have some unintended consequences. Here to talk to you about it is Pierre Briançon. Hello, Pierre. Good morning. Good morning. So, yes, I mean, this is definitely an interesting idea, and I can understand the concept of obviously trying to limit the revenues that Russia can gain from its oil exports, because Europe has obviously been continuing to to send money there. Tell us, tell us about this plan and kind of how it came about. I believe the origin of the plan was Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi a few weeks ago, who suggested Western countries form what he called a cartel an oil buying cartel, a symmetric, if you want, to the oil producing cartel that is OPEC, mm-hmm. OPEC and its allies. So the idea would be the same, would, I mean, the symmetric would be you decide as buyers together that you will not pay above a certain price for the oil of a, in this case, of a given producer. There are many difficulties in this. Oil, I mean, buyers cartels usually, I mean, seldom work ever. The second thing is that oil is a world market, so the EU and even the EU plus the West are not the only players. And we know that you know there are very eager and hungry players wanting to buy oil in the rest of the world. And third, how do you go about it when dealing with Russia? Because the idea would be, so the idea of the EU in the current context is to punish Russia and to stop sending as much money as they have been sending. The EU alone has sent more than $30 billion just for Russian oil in the month since the war, in the four months of the war, much more than they did last year. So you understand the feeling 
it's in, you know we can't keep sending all those billions of dollars to Russia. He's using them to fund the war, etc. So the idea you want to lower the price that Russia gets, but still have Russian oil on the world market. Because what happens if Russia pulls the oil? Say if Russia, if Putin doesn't want to suffer the humiliation, mm-hmm. that is you're not going to pay for. Uh, he said, okay, I'll keep my oil. It's, I mean, it's, he, it's other, it raises other problems for him, etc. But it doesn't matter. If he does that, the oil prices increase. Yeah. And Russia currently contributes, I mean, Russian exports contributes to about 8% of the world output. Yeah. See, they, this shrinks to, 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 to 5%. Mm-hmm. Estimates are that the oil prices, global oil prices, will rise by 20 to 30%. That's a lot. And oil prices were beginning to decrease in the last month on other concerns, which is that you know the world is going towards a recession or major economic slowdown. And in those contexts, usually oil prices you know become, let's say, more moderate, and they had started decreasing. Since the Thursday before the G7 that decided that measure, and I've checked the numbers, oil prices are up 7% in five days. So the market is telling you that this may have a sort of knock-on effect in a in a in an adverse way. It's a disruption on the on the market, and the the likelihood is that it will send prices up. The conditions under which it could work or might work would be if everybody agreed to do that. And how likely is that? So you need India, China, these countries that have been big buyers of of Russian oil since the war and sort of taking advantage, I suppose, in a way. You need them to agree to this, right? Yes, it's not likely that they would agree to gang up with the West against Russia. And on the other hand, they could benefit if, say, this worked even partially, they could benefit because world prices declining would benefit them. But it's not likely to work again. First of all, you have a whole series of problems saying how, how, which is the right level we're going to pay. Mm-hmm. And we know it's going to be way below current world prices because Ural, which is the you know, the standard uh, Russian crude oil, already trades at a discount to world prices and a much higher discount than before the war because no one wants, basically no one wants to pick up Russian oil. People, shipping agents, buyers of the oil are afraid of you know, possible sanctions. The sanctions regime is legally unclear which is a good thing because people are too afraid to try to even get around it or work around it. So the prices would be below $90, below $80, we don't know. They and want to... A sort of insurance mechanism, is that right? They want to... Go, well, how do how you achieve that? They want to ban insurance for cargoes that would accept oil above, the, 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 the say, the, the set price. So it only works if, if an overwhelming majority of oil is transported by EU and uh, is insured, I'm sorry, by EU and mostly UK companies. By the way, the ban, the, the, the price cap raises another problem is that the EU and the UK had agreed a, a few weeks ago on a total ban of insurance for Russian oil, yeah, which, right. which I think, by the way, is not a very good idea. It's not a great idea because it, it, it could lead to the, the unintended results. We, we. So they have to reopen that agreement to forget about the ban, well, the ban is not in force yet. Forget about the total ban. It's going to be a partial ban, and the ban is going to be only above 80, let's say, let's agree it's $80 or 75 whatever they want. 
$80 and $75, by the way, is a price that Putin still makes comfortable money on. Okay, producing prices and marginal producing prices in Russia are somewhere, it's hard to estimate, $35 to $45 a barrel. If he says at 70, it's still, you know, it, it does cut the, the, the amount of revenue he gets. But the likelihood is not is not that there's not going to be a major international agreement on this. And if there is no agreement, agreement China and, and India, because we always cite those two countries, can always find cheaper. Russia has, I don't know, tens of mm, uh, insurance companies, some respectable and some of them on, on the shady side. But you can find, you will find insurance uh, companies ready to take on the liability of, of, of such uh, oil. So I don't think it will work. I think it's a political push, mostly from the US to keep needling Putin, to keep, to keep you know, upsetting him and see how, how, how he reacts. What we already know, because they have said so a month and a half ago, the Russian, I believe, Minister of Energy, but a member of Putin's government, said, OK, if you, if you try to put a price cap on the oil, we'll cut gas supply. They have already shrunk gas supplies to Germany and Italy. So this will ex probably accelerate the, the, the move from the EU, from the whole of Europe to, to you know, we know of the dependence of Russian energy. It will, there's a, there are good sides of it if you, if you want to look at it that way. But it will come at the, at the price of another crisis probably. And Pierre, what you were saying about this, you know, this insurance idea, the total ban that they had to reopen and kind of rethink they now have this plan, but I, I guess what I'm gathering from what you're saying is, if they are, if, if, if to be smart, they should sort of reopen this plan and scrap this too, because if a recession is coming, the sort of natural order of markets will actually bring down the price and mean less revenue is going to Putin. Yes, absolutely. I, th I think the insurance ban is, is is not a good idea to begin with, and it will lead to the consequences. We say that that if if really you force Russia. To keep all the oil it has, you open way either for major sanctions uh, evasion because it's so absurd that if you, if you compress, if you play with market forces too much, they will they will react in a in a way or form elsewhere. So you, you think you're in a closed world, and uh, I think it it is it's, it's it derives from the illusion that that the oil market is us and Putin. But the oil market is not like the gas market. The gas market is Putin and us, Putin and Europe, okay, mostly. It's a local market. The oil market is a world market, global market, and there are forces that will make sure that, that the interest band doesn't work. Interesting. Very interesting. Pierre, thank you very much for that. And uh, yes, many more pieces on Putin to come. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Tashlich in London and Sharon Lamb in Toronto. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on the cast, megaphone, or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews.